Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Double Shelix. I'm Kayla. I'm Sally, and today we are so excited to be bringing you a new interview episode with today's amazing guest, Dr. Erica Moore. Erica is a professor in material science at University of Maryland, and her work focuses on the intersection of tissue regeneration and immunology. Professor Moore's CV is very long, and she has won a lot of awards, but a few that I want to highlight, she won the NSF back in the day when she was a lowly grad student. So take a listen to our NSF How to Win episode, and you can also win just like her. Erica, I saw that you won the Edge in Tech Athena Award. Yes, yeah. This very niche award that we also won. That is such an awesome program. Yeah, it was an honor to be nominated and then a double honor to be selected. Who nominated you? One of my professor friends who's seen some of the work and involvements that I've been trying to push forward. And she was like, Erica, I'm submitting this for you. And I was like, okay, thanks so much. You know, I feel like it's very rare to be nominated for something. And it's also even more rare to have someone take the time to submit your nomination, right? Recognition and action towards the submission of a nomination. It's such an honor, yeah. And a great sign of the work that you're doing. We feel the same way. Here's just a plug to all our listeners is to nominate someone for something. Like we felt so touched when a faculty reached out and was like, we're gonna nominate you. And we were like, okay, thanks, right? So I think even if you don't win nominating, like we're all about nominating on Double Shelix. Anyway, so you did your PhD at Duke, postdoc at Johns Hopkins, tons of awards along the way faculty position at University of Florida, now new faculty position at Maryland. This is amazing. Um, We could talk about your research for like a whole season of episodes, but to start it off, do you want to tell us briefly about your work or like one project that's on your mind right now? Yeah, thank you so much, Sally, for the beautiful introduction. It's always awkward to hear people say what you've done because you're like, who did that? Not me. (laughs) It's interesting, like, you know, people capture different highs. But when you're living the life, you're kind of just like, that was like a Thursday, and I had more things to do on Friday, you know? Um, Yeah, so thank you for having me here. I'm delighted to be here. It's always like, I feel very flattering to have people care about what you want to say and what you do. So I'm thrilled to be here. Um, yeah, so the I lead uh, the Moore Lab now at the University of Maryland. And one small correction, we're actually in the Fischel Department of Bioengineering. So at University of Florida, I was in the Material Science and Engineering Department. And then actually our work so much better aligns with bioengineering. And that's what all of my degrees are in. And so we switched over to the Fischel Department of Bioengineering. And right now, Um, Our research, like you said, is kind of at this intersection of using biomaterials, so material platforms, to understand innate immune cell function. We're really fascinated by these specific cells called macrophage immune cells. I've been obsessed with them for like 10 years. (laughs) Um, It's a very loving relationship. But basically, these cells are ubiquitous in most of our tissues. They play really interesting roles in diseases and in even just tissue development. And so we're really interested in understanding them better, like understanding their function better. So we do this in a variety of different ways from disease context, also just fundamental extracellular matrix macrophage interactions. We cover it in a host of different you know, modalities using our platforms. So that's an overview of what we do in the lab. That's exciting. Can you tell us a little bit of specifics about one project that's on your brain right now? 
Yeah, I think one project that we really, really love that I've been spending, like my graduate student and I have been working this entire summer on, is looking at the role of age in determining macrophage function. And so my dad loves this. Anyone in the audience who has any loved ones who are 65 years and older, we know that sometimes as we age, our ability to regenerate or repair alters, right? Like I don't heal as well tell my knees. I don't heal as well from like being a 16 year old to, you know, now my age. And so one of my students and I, we put together this idea that it'd be really cool to study and understand how age affects macrophage function. So we know that the function generally declines, but we don't know how. And so in our system, we put together a model where we look at how macrophages from different aged donor populations can basically help us develop new blood vessels. So if you isolate macrophages from donors who are 65 to 72, they don't do as great a job as helping us rebuild our blood vessels as donors who are 18 to 35. And so now we can use this platform to basically see if we can rescue aging. So my dad calls me all the time and he's like, hey, did it work yet? <laughs> you know, can you help me? <laughs> and I'm like, not quite yet, but it's one of the projects that's the most exciting right now. That's awesome. In my role now, I do a lot of histology from in vivo studies, looking at biomaterial response. And those macrophages, they're right there on the edge. They're so critical. And for so long, we've overlooked them. Yeah. I will follow you on Google Scholar to keep up with all the latest because I also, in my work life, would love to know more about macrophages. Oh, that's awesome. Is there a project over the course of your career that has sort of thrown the biggest curveball or had like a really exciting, unexpected finding or non-exciting, unexpected finding? Yeah, I mean, I think all of the projects in my group have been like, we are a more spontaneous group. So I know some people, when they start out in their research careers, they're like, this is the thing I'm going to do. And I'm just going to follow that to the ends of the earth. I'm more of like an inspiration. I'm very receptive to inspiration. And so we're more of a collaborative research environment. And I think one of the projects that was the most like, oh, didn't expect that to work was um, actually the NSF career sponsored project um, where we actually are looking at how integrin ligands direct macrophage function through integrin receptor mediation. And so we were like, there's no way this is going to work. Other people would have done it. And then we found like using a very simple SNP from collagen one that, yeah, if we block alpha two beta one on macrophages, they're not as inflammatory. Um, and we were like, oh my God, you know, so it was, it was a very surprising result. In fact, I was like, yeah, I'm sure this is not going to work. But one of my first PhD students like dove deep into the literature and was like, no, I actually think we're onto something here. And it turned out to be a very fruitful endeavor. You know, we're still doing a lot of work in that regime now. I love when you find a phenomenon like that and it's legit. I feel like there's so many false starts in those kinds of questions. It's like, this could be the thing. And then a couple experiments later, like, no, it was just, it was just luck. And especially when you're starting on a new lab, everything is so exploratory. And so when you get any sort of positive data, you're like, wait, do I trust it? <laughs> Repeat it 17 times to make sure, you know, it holds. That makes complete sense. <laughs> so your research is super cool and exciting. And I think Sally and I, especially given the fields that we share, could spend a million days on that. So we will say that for another era. One of the things that we're super excited to have you talk about is another space that you've been really involved in, which is 
to broadly put it, funding and science. And so um, the central question of, of today's episode that we wanted to get to is who can afford to stay in science? And we have been talking a little bit about this in some of our past episodes. See our recent episode with Dr. Shirley Malcolm. We want to talk to you because you have put some special efforts into these areas. And so maybe we can start with you um, telling us about more well. Yeah, so how I got involved in funding and who can afford to stay in science was actually motivated by my own personal story. I am one of five children. So my parents really loved having kids because that's a pretty large um, sibling grouping. And um, when I was in high school, I'm the middle, I'm the middle third. um, So I have older sisters, younger siblings, and I was right in the middle. That afforded me the benefit of seeing my older sisters as they were navigating applying for college and like, you know, figuring out the financial ramifications of their decisions for college. Um, And I was like, you know, I really don't want to take out loans for for college because it's like super expensive. I was just noticing the trends and I was like, yeah, people are getting into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Seems really bad, you know, to be so young and to be in so much debt. And so I, I kind of set up this goal of never getting in debt. I failed horribly at that because it's kind of unrealistic. Um, But, you know, at the end of my schooling, so I went to Johns Hopkins University for my bachelor's degree. And by the time I graduated with my bachelor's, which is a miracle in and of itself, um, I also found that I was, you know, about $65,000 in debt. And to me at the time, I had never seen that amount of money in my life. I had worked for daycares and like odd work study jobs. But, you know, if I got like $5,000, that was like a huge amount of money, you know. Um, So being $65,000 in debt was a really tantamount fear-inducing experience. And I remember at the time I had also gotten involved in research and I was really interested in doing more biomedically related research. Um, But I was like, you know, I don't know if I can afford to get my degree have my debt, and go ahead and do research, right? Like, that's, you know, research doesn't really pay that much if you're going into your grad school. Um, And there's kind of this very long delayed gratification zone to be able to access higher salaries. And so that's what really got me thinking about, like, who can afford to stay in science? Um, Fast forward to my PhD, And as we all have experienced, struggles happen, you know, at every stage when you're doing research. And throughout my PhD, I was kind of like, oh, my goodness, none of my data looks super positive. Why am I doing this? This existential crisis moment. And um, I was talking with one of my older sisters who gave me a little bit of tough love. And she said, well, if you're so tired of it, you know, do something different. What else would you do? (laughs) She kind of threw out this blanket challenge. And I was like, wow, I would actually start a company focused on educating students in like financial literacy, personal finance, how they can navigate higher education towards their own end. And even if they make the same choices, right, even if I would have made the same choices and still ended up in my undergraduate debt, at least I would have known, you know, like and owned that. So there's a difference in ownership, right, when you know the impact of your choices versus naively or ignorantly making those choices as I had done. And so that was the birth of More Wealth, the nonprofit company that I currently serve as the executive director of. That's awesome. And I think for anyone listening, being able to have your PhD program serve students 
who have undergraduate debt for whatever reason, right, is a key reason that you need to be paying your PhD students more. Right. Like when faculty go into these meetings and they're like, oh, when I was a PhD, it's like, no, get out of here. When you are a PhD, you went to state school. Tuition was $1,000 a semester. We're not living in 1960s anymore. Move to the future. Pay students. Could I interrupt just to like echo that? Because the other assumption that's underlying in there is the fact that college, undergraduate college is more expensive than ever before. So any of the old paradigms that we're existing in don't really apply to today. And furthermore, you know, the rate that college tuition and all of these things has increased has not matched the rate of pay for, you know, graduate students or anything else. So there's this inherent gap that's always been present, but has never been larger than it is today. And then with that, you know, we talk a lot about about who has access to what, but if you're from a financially insecure or a non like higher education familiar family or background, like my parents were just happy that all of their children got into college. They did not understand like, oh, maybe we should have gone to state schools versus private institutions, et cetera, right? Um, and so I think that also is a key aspect of like, we assume this underlying fundamental education when it comes to like finances for college and others, but that's just not present in different communities. Absolutely. And I think that what you're saying reminds me of like in our sec- in my second or third year, I think Kayla, you and I were both like peer mentors in our PhD program. And we're at some sort of like welcome first year midway semester check-in lunch and multiple students revealed that they were spending $1,000 per month more than their stipend because they didn't like they had debt. They were working to pay off. They didn't realize how expensive housing would be and got a place too close to campus that they couldn't really afford. They weren't used to, they didn't know about cooking for themselves. So they were eating out every day and it wasn't like anything. It was just a lack of this basic fundamental financial principles that was contributing to them having to take out debt to even stay in a PhD program. For your journey of like having $65,000 of undergraduate debt, how did you work toward paying that off? Like what lessons did you do and like how does more wealth advise students now? Yeah, that's a great question. I think my experience of learning that I was in $65,000 worth of debt was, like I said, a little stressful because I didn't realize how much debt I was in until I was very close to graduation. I think it was like senior fall year, you know, so right one semester before walking across that stage. And I was looking at my future, you know, career opportunities considering graduate school. And I had subsidized and unsubsidized federal loans. So a privileged position of having federal loans versus private loans, but also that unsubsidized loan no matter what, if you're still enrolled in school, still collects interest. And then by the time you graduate, it compounds six months following your graduation date. And so I went and basically made made this spreadsheet of death because it was all of my debt. (laughs) And I realized that each month, I think it was like, uh, I'm going to, I might like mess up the exact number. So give me grace audience members, but it was probably like, $200 to $300 in interest that was just going to be accruing each month. That was not paying down anything. That was just accruing interest based on the interest rates at the time. And so that was a little bit scary to me because I was like, wait, that's like my groceries for three weeks. You know, that's like, if you put it, I always put things in terms of a Chipotle burrito with guac. 
that is like, you know, a lot of Chipotle burritos that I could be eating that I was not eating because I would have to be putting, you know, away just to not gain interest on my loans. And so basically that sent me down this idea of like, okay, where did I go wrong? How do I start budgeting? Like I was still working a work study. I had set up some like tutoring and other things that I could, um, like supplement my income with. But I basically realized like on a graduate student stipend after taxes in North Carolina, I was not going to be able to afford rent, a car, payment on my student loans, like all of these things that I was like, yeah, this all has to fit, you know, within one month's uh, budget. And so that basically spurred me to start self-educating. I read a ton of books I listened to a ton of podcasts. Um, I I just basically started to realize like, yeah, financially, it's a huge sacrifice to go to graduate school. And that's something that people do not appreciate. Like I would have mentors who I love dearly, but they would tell me like, it doesn't matter. And in four years, you'll be making six figures. And I was like, yeah, but that's four years from now. My debt will be three times, you know, the amount or my like interest payments will be, you know, massively larger than what I want them to be. And I just had like, there was a lot of um, misunderstanding of like the impact that that caused, like the the concern that that caused me. So I basically through a self-education and talking with more and more grad students, I realized, okay, there are some pieces that have to fit together, you know, in order for this whole thing to work out. Um, And that's the foundation for the basis of the curriculum that I developed with More Wealth. I basically realized, you know, like most financial literacy programs, and I've done the research on this, there are a ton of programs that are towards like high school and younger. And then something happens in college where they're just like, good luck, you got it, right? And then you enter into young adulthood and you're just like, wait, what just happened, you know? And there's like, it's like um, this dearth, I think, of substantial resources that are processed and delivered in a way that's actually meaningful to an undergraduate student. For example, like I would be reading these podcasts, I would be reading books and listening to podcasts, but people would say like, yeah, so 401k matching and all of this stuff. And I'm like a grad student. I'm like, we don't have access to a 401k. It's like better set aside your 25 percent for quarterly taxes or you'll be screwed in April like very different set of problems very different set of problems and the other thing that I realized as an undergrad and even as a grad student our our funding our like income access is like a lower level per month and there's also especially as a graduate student it's highly cyclical right like you could do your summer REU research program and you'd get five thousand dollars but then you'd have to come back and have that last you, you know, the next nine months while you work 10 hours a week in your work study, right? So that's a very different um, income like reception than like most adults who work a nine to five job have, right? It actually follows very closely with like freelancers and others, right? This cyclical, um, highly temporal access to money. And so that's what basically, as I started to learn and educate myself, I basically took snips of what was relevant and combined it into my own, like what I thought was was going to be actually useful for students who are about 18 to 25. And so that's that formed the basis of the um, More Wealth curriculum that we deliver in workshops to different students now. And we try to make it really accessible, right? It, like a lot of our um, like examples give context around like, okay, you've got an internship, you're making a ton of money. What do you actually want to do with that money over the next nine months? Because that's the true goal. It's actually not that much for the summer, 
when you have access to money, but it's when you're super stressed and ordering DoorDash every other week, because, you know, in between midterm exams and other things like that. And so um, that's basically how it all unfolded. Self-education, iterative learning and design and feedback from the students in the workshops and then applying and refining the curriculum. I love it. These are such important things. And it's so true what you said about the types of financial literacy that is offered being like, either it's for a second grader and being like, this is a quarter and this is a dime. (laughs) Or it's like, okay, so how to build your 401k in 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and there isn't anything between it. And it is such a different ballpark when you're considering graduate school, especially as part of that trajectory. With that in mind, I, I want to talk more about this transition from undergrad into graduate school, because it feels like that's one point which might keep people out. If you know that, as you said, you're going to have this debt that comes with you, and you're not going to be making much money, how are you ever going to get out of that debt? So that's like one point that someone might say, well, this is not sustainable. I can't do this. And then the other point might be later, if you want to stay like as a postdoc and wait for a professor job. So, so we can come back to that, but let's start at the first one. And I'm wondering, do you have any off the hand numbers or research or experiences that you could share about like, what might steer someone, prevent them from actually going to graduate school because of that? Like who's getting prevented? How often is this happening? And if they do still decide to go, like what can they do about it? How are they going to survive? And and then is it actually financially worth it at the end? <laughs> is there a payoff or is this like you know, a labor of passion. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. So let's start, you know, this is a critical transition that you're identifying the undergraduate to graduate access point. And I know people love to refer to this pipeline analogy. I'm not a fan of the pipeline analogy. So let's just call it a transition. It's an opportunity of transition. And I think actually, In my experience, one of the main things that keeps people out from pursuing like graduate schooling is understanding the differences in graduate schooling, like the degrees, and understanding funding opportunities in each of those differences. So a lot of students, and primarily I talk to students who are from underrepresented groups, historically oppressed and systemically oppressed still too, most of them, there is just a fundamental lack of understanding between like a master's degree and a PhD, right? So if you do a PhD in a STEM related field, you are much more likely to have a full term, full time stipend, right? Versus if you do a master's, that's very rare to have a stipend. Um, And so understanding like, what does funding look like in each degree that I'm interested in pursuing at all? Um, that's one major barrier. In fact, I'll tell a funny story. So I did an REU as in from between my junior and senior year in undergrad, so third and fourth year. And I basically went and met with this dean at this institution that I went uh, and did my REU at. And he specifically told me, I was like, yeah, grad school seems cool. I'll do a master's. That seems like, you know, two-ish years I can get out. This will be great. And he was like, do not do that. (laughs) Do a PhD and then figure out if you want to do your master's and get your master's along the way. Because he was like, basically, you would be paying us versus us paying you. And I was like, 
oh my gosh, you know? So I remember at the time I was like, wow, that's a really cool hack, you know? But I, I did not know that because um, at the time, no one in my family, immediate family had gone into anything beyond their bachelor's degree. And so I think it's, you know, that fundamental understanding and funding differences. The other thing that I think people don't appreciate or what keeps people from pursuing certain programs is, and I think we're all susceptible to this, but we sometimes get caught up in the glitz and glamour of like the location of a graduate school versus the cost of living in that location, right? You're, we went to graduate school at Berkeley, UCSF, like we're on your wavelength with this one. Yes. And so I remember like, you know, the stipends are relatively, there. there's not that much variability. The stipends do not reflect cost of living. That has, has always been true. You know, that's like a hard period statement. And so the other thing that I realized, like when I'm counseling, tutoring, mentoring students is I'm like, yeah, consider the kind of life you want to live as a graduate student what the cost of living is in that area and where you might want to be applying to go to graduate school. And then the last element that I think that really helps people in transitions is learning how to be, there's a hidden curriculum, hidden curriculum in graduate school applications and top offs and other funding teasers that different departments can offer. And so that's the other thing that I actually will coach and counsel some of the students that I talk to. I'm like, make yourself as competitive as possible because you can get an extra $5,000, right? That's like a very common incentive that some programs give, but that has a huge impact on how you set up your budget. Um, there are more pieces of advice that I have for people once they're in graduate school, but I would say financially for keeping people out, it's those three main points. One, like understanding the funding structure of different research programs, what pays, what doesn't, what pays maybe more than others. Two, not really considering like where they want to go. And then three, not making themselves as competitive as possible when they're out on these markets, right? There is a lot of incentive pay. Even I remember I was a very poor undergrad and I was like applying to grad school and I was like paying a lot of money for each of the applications. You know, I just remember I was like, well, there are groceries for one week. There is groceries for the next week. You know, it was like, pretty substantial amount of money. And then I just thought I was like, wait, I should just email these people and tell them that I need a waiver, you know, like, because I really did. I did not have any extra money at the time to pay for these applications. And I think it was so much more honest to just ask, hey, if you really want me to apply here, I really want to apply, but I can't afford the $65 that you, you know, are requiring people to submit. Maybe this is too progressive, but I'm the only one not in academia. So I'll say it. If your rich parents aren't paying for your grad school applications, you should ask for a waiver. Probably most undergrads could cobble together 65 bucks. Like you can make it happen, but cobbling together 65 bucks, 10 times, that's not cobbling anymore. That's struggling. And even 65 bucks is a lot. 65 bucks is a lot. Think of the Chipotle burritos. That's a lot of food. You know, like, I, I hate to put it in that term, but it's like, it's very realistic because as students, I feel like I'm, I'm a very um, food, I was a very food motivated student. Like, and so I was always like, wait, this is so much money, you know, like, that's enough groceries for one week, like I said. Yeah, so just asking questions, getting that fundamental knowledge. Also, I know there are a few resources I'm blanking right now where they basically share stipend amounts. 
But if you're concerned and don't know or appreciate it, email the admin person for that program and ask, you know, what's the stipend range? What has it been historically? You know, and I always tell students to speak to other students, understand where and how they're living, right? Like, are they living in, you know, like in like a five, 400 foot square foot room with two other people? Or do they have room to actually like live and enjoy their lives? It actually, I, I will kind of make a small correction. It's not that some areas are better than others. It's that for each person, we have different desires. So it's important to align your desires with where you will be going to grad school, for example, right? So I made the assumption in that last statement that you'd like more space. If that's not you, then don't worry about it, right? You can live there and you know you're going to be in lab all the time. You're going to have so much fun going out, probably in the city and other areas like that. But it's basically like getting greater recognition with your desires and values and then aligning those more intentionally with graduate school programs. Going back to what you were saying earlier about how the graduate student um, pay structure and the timing therein is very much like freelancing. Another commonality it has with freelancing is, and Kayla, I know we could have recorded 12 episode um, arc about your experiences with this, but at least in our graduate program, if you don't get paid, no one is going to notice except you. Kayla and I both had experiences where the check just doesn't come one month. Or six months. Or for six months. And then you call and you're like, excuse me, who has my stipend? And your PI is like, please pay Sally right now. And then like the administration just like doesn't. Where they say, oh, but now that we haven't paid you, we have to spread out the pay we didn't pay you for the next six months because we are only allowed to pay you so much. That happens all the time. Yeah, it does. You're the only one that's going to notice if you don't get paid. So speak up and keep tabs on it. Like have a calendar alert to check your, because you're probably auto depositing, right? So have a calendar alert to check that that went into your account every month on the 12th or whatever. Or like, because you're, you're often switching payment sources, you might be switching times of month. So there might be a month where you get paid on the first on one month and then you get paid on the 31st in the next month. So if you're counting on that money, you're not going to have it. Yeah, I would say like graduate school entering into, you know, the undergrad to grad transition point one is a lesson in self-advocacy. And that is one of the key lessons that I took from my experience. So Kayla, when you were talking about that second transition, grad to postdoc, I think it's better appreciating and understanding what skills you learned in graduate school and how to design your intentional life. Like, you know, and so that's why I I wanted to touch base on that point that you made about like, is it just a practice and uh, suffering for your passion, you know, something like that. And I do think like, oftentimes that is an aspect of it. I actually think it's like a combo. Um, It's like this 50%, you know, as a graduate student and most in at least at the University of Florida and some at the University of Maryland, you're part student, part employee. It's like that same weird, yes, we're suffering for our passion and it's a cool-ish job, you know, but I think it's one of those things where it's like understanding the benefits of the degree for yourself and then reflecting and determining, is that degree worth it? You know, it's not worth it for everybody. No way. Yes. And I also like to remind people considering this is that this is very optional school. (laughs) So there's nothing that's like making you a better person or like this is not some kind of weird trophy that you need to collect. Like this is it's just 
a means to an end. So what's your end? This is like learning cursive. You can use it. You don't have to use it. Do you have um, any experiences that you want to share or thoughts you want to share in terms of that? And um, again, like we just made an episode about the the holding pattern that is the, the lengthening and lengthening postdoc and how this might correspond with times in your life where you would ideally be spending more money than you were at age 20. Yeah, um, I appreciate uh, it's hard with the postdoc. It's so challenging because if you think of the PhD uh, in any way as suffering for your passion or your science, the postdoc is in some regards like being tortured for your science, you know, like it it cranks it up a little bit um, because you're older. You are in, you know, well into adulthood by now. It's not as fun to live like a student, you know, like as a graduate student, I think people are like, it's all a walk, you know, you can kind of still be looked at as an undergraduate depending on your age. But for a postdoc, I think it's a little bit more long suffering. And it's hard because I think a lot of people exit this academic option um, as a result of the long suffering that's present in, 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 in more and more postdocs as we see like inflation in the number of postdocs. Something that was very interesting that happened in the pandemic is that there was a massive exodus of the number of postdocs. And I thought that was actually good. I know that's controversial, but you know, this, these are my opinions. So in of one, take it or leave it. But I think that a lot of times postdocs are a perfunctory, you know, transition instead of an intentional transition. Um, and in the same way that there has to be explicit consideration with graduate school, I think there also should be explicit consideration with postdocs, specifically for negotiating salary. So HHMI, I believe last year, it might have been this year, 2023 is a little bit of a blur, introduced their new a recommended pay range for biomedical postdocs. And I think at the low is 70,000, right? And NIH is still at around 56 something and some change, right? And so I think in many ways, the the new recommended HHMI postdoc salaries reflect this kind of uh, difference in appreciation for the role of postdocs, recognition for payment of postdocs, pay equity, at least approaching it, right? And we're not quite there, but again, it's like this idea that postdocs should be valued, grad students should be valued you should be paid according to your value. And that's ever more true for postdocs, right? Because, you know, graduate students, it's a training position. You're training, you know, you're getting better as you go towards it. And the same is true to, for postdocs, except you already have the degree, you know, so. There's no carrot to dangle to just stay one more month and finish the thing. Exactly, exactly. And so mm -hmm, I was just going to say it, like, I think a lot of postdocs, I tell a lot of my postdoc friends, like, why are you doing this? What is your interim's goal? Like interim goal? And how are you intentionally moving towards that goal? Because it is a transition role. It is not supposed to be, you know, like a long-term role. But I think a lot of people kind of get stuck and stay in these roles. There was a really fascinating article. I think it was in Science. Um, and this was probably like, eight or so years ago now, but I'm sure there have been follow-ups, but it was basically looking at the time that people spend in their postdoc and their net earning potential over their lifetime. The longer they spend in their postdoc, the lower their earning potential is. It does not matter what they do after that postdoc. They can go into academia, they can go into industry, they can do startups. 
whatever, it doesn't matter. The longer they spend in that postdoc in terms of years, the less they earn over their lifetime. And I think that was a very like uh, powerful motivator for myself to be like, hey, you don't want to spend a lot of time in this transition role. You want to move to the next stage. Yeah. And I would add to that. We've had guests on this podcast say basically like, oh, I did a postdoc because I finished grad school and needed money and couldn't get a job. And I think that that paradigm is extremely common, but because there's taboos about not being able to get a job, there's taboos about not having money, this perpetuates. So then it becomes a thing. You look around and you see all your friends and they're going to postdocs. So you're like, oh, I should go to a postdoc too. Um, and I would say in my experience, I finished my PhD, I couldn't get a job. And so I did the calculus and my husband has a real job from his industry right? So I could afford to like be unemployed for a while while looking for a postdoc, figuring that if I got an industry salary, it would all work out in the end and it would make up for when I've been unemployed. But like so many people cannot do this. And to throw another added wrench in the situation for students, international students who may have visa limitations or other immigration restrictions, it's like, okay, I defend on August 20th, on August 21st, I'm not a student. And depending on the situation, like I need to either leave the US like in a hot minute or get a job. And not that getting a postdoc is easy, but like if you plan ahead, you can like work with one of your PI's friends and like, blah, 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 now you're a postdoc, right? So I think that there's people like yourself who use the postdoc as a very intentional strategy, but there's many people who fall into the trough of the postdoc because of financial limitation which sucks. It does suck. And thank you so much, Shelly, for kind of emphasizing those other aspects of, you know, why people may or may not do a postdoc. I think the other aspect that I would, you know, just add is like, it is okay to, it's totally fine to use a postdoc as a tool to leverage you into that next stage of life. But I think some people forget to use it as a leverage. Right. If you're and especially this is this is one point that I have to hammer in on. I think people assume that I can only do a postdoc if I want to go into academia. That's not true. You know, I think that's just totally not factual. And the other aspect of that is like you can use a postdoc in, in a similar ways that you use a PhD, right, to gain skills, to do all of these other things. I think the comment or the critique is what comes next for you? after your postdoc? Are you using it to basically, you know, bridge yourself to applying for jobs that you're more interested in, more passionate about? Or are you just going to kind of hang out for, for many years? And I also appreciate that not everybody has supportive mentors. So I hate to say it because it's my own field. Um, but academia, I, I feel sometimes the power imbalance between graduate students and postdocs and trainees in the lab and their PI is so disproportionate where you can have a postdoc that is trying to leverage, right? And trying to get what they want from the position, but they are not supported. And in fact, they're they're punished or critiqued for doing those things. And so they're, the variability, the decentralized nature of our laboratory environments is sometimes like, ah, I wish there could be. You don't have to beat around the bush on Devil's Trelix. We know that toxic mentors are out there. We know that they are actively ruining lives every day. And we know that probably 90% of student misery can be directly attributed to probably 20% of PIs. Yeah. And so I think that's why the other thing with postdocs, why I have like uh, such care and intention in my heart towards them is because sometimes they are stuck by situations that are beyond their control, you know, and unless they want to literally burn a bridge and let light everything on fire and deviate, 
they have to play the game, so to speak, you know, in order to make it to the other side and, and achieve higher levels of freedom. We're getting into the systemic issues, right? Like, like the NIH pay minimum, the power hierarchy, like these are things that are systemic. And so to bring this full circle, is there anything that you or More Wealth is doing on that end to bring these issues together? Yeah, so I am a big fan of, I got this from Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it's basically, I did this during the pandemic, so I was going crazy. But it's like focusing on where you have leverage and influence and giving people as many tools and skills as possible. So systemically, I am slightly less hopeful because, you know, to change some of these systemic issues, I don't know what else needs to happen. It's like the data is there. The publications are there. We have the citations. It's gone, you know, global or it's gone, you know, viral. And still there's kind of these things that's just like, okay, three years later, there's a response to that thing, which is fine. I appreciate some things take time. But in the more immediate, you know, intervention, more wealth, and I really believe in educating students to the highest ability possible in their own personal finance, giving them all of the resources, making sure they understand, right, the impact of their resources or their choices, and then kind of serving as this bolster to say, okay, great, you're still in the system, here are the rules of the game because no one told you the rules. They just shoved you into this game and they're like, good luck, make it out. Why aren't you making it out? I don't understand, right? That's like the refrain that is often said. And, and so where we come in is really just educating students on personal finance and basically giving them more power within their locus of control so that they know the impact of their choices and decisions. And then they can better communicate that to others, to family members, you know, to friends, etc. why they made a certain choice versus another choice. And that's really like at the end of the day, that's our goal. Because like I said earlier, there's no, I don't want no one to take out student loans again. Like, I can't look objectively at every single person in the world who's trying to go into higher education and say, no, no loans for you. Because it loans are a tool, right? They're a financial tool that some people need. I never would have gone to undergraduate without loans. So, you know, it would have been crazy for me to be like, don't ever take out loans. But it is it within my power to say, here's the ramifications of your decisions to take out loans. Is it worth it for you, for your own journey? Right. And that's what I want people to begin to answer. And systemically, I think that makes a lot of change. So I think we come from a more grassroots individual empowerment versus systemic because like, you know, I'm not the director of the NIH and I'm not mad at that. <laughs> you know, like I don't want to be, I don't want that job right now. But I think that there are like, I can speak to students at HBCUs and at other, you know, in other marginalized communities. And I can say, hey, I, I understand your parents don't get the value of your degree. Here's what you can tell them, right? Like, here's how you can communicate the impact of these decisions with them. That's amazing. And if there's anyone listening who is an undergrad or who's maybe a mentor to undergrads or faculty, like faculty high, you're all listening, how can they educate themselves or their students about what, how can they access more wealth resources and additional information about what you all are doing? Oh yeah, great question. So our website now, we have um, all of our partners that we partnered with in the past. We are more than happy to do workshops. We cover all five of our tenants kind of in the curriculum that we propose. So that ranges from the fundamentals of budgeting, 
credit utilization, student loan utilization, and we even get a little bit into investing for students who are really interested. And then also we have a complete um, separate section on financial psychology and on navigating transitions. So these are like, this is what we found to be the most helpful and relevant for our for those communities. So if you wanna reach out to us, we're more than happy to provide um, a workshop. We also do scholarships. So one of the scholarships that we actually target is the transition from undergrad to grad, um, because there's usually a like 60 plus day pay gap for students and they have to move across the country with magic money, right? So um, we try to target that by awarding scholarships. We award about $25,000 um, for that transition scholarship. And then we have another smaller scholarship. So if people wanna check out our website, get in touch for an, a workshop or any of the other curriculum that we develop, we'd be more than happy to help develop that and um, work with you. I think every department needs to hire you, give you guys a ton of money and use your resources to educate their students because Something that comes up on this podcast is, you know, a PhD prepares you, but like for what? And to be honest, when I was interviewing for my industry positions, the reason that I got the offers that I did is because I could tell them the innovations I did on Double Shelix, right? Like they did care about my papers and they wanted to know that I could communicate my science clearly, but like they asked me way more questions about what I've learned from my podcast and like you know, interviewing experts and like translating science for the public. They care way more about that than my research. And I have a research position right now. Like I do R&D in industry and they still care more about these other skills that I was able to develop outside of the structure curriculum. So here's a plug. Let your students explore their other needs within their PhD and postdoc so that they can be set up for their actual career, not like the fake career that exists at the end of a PhD. <laughs> yeah, I would say like, just to add Sally, professional development to me, is as important, if not more important, than the skills you're learning at the bench. I've seen it, like you see so many talented students, but they go give a presentation and you're like, I don't understand what was important from that presentation at all, right? Or like, you can't budget your money at all, but like you publish in science. Well, this brings us to our favorite part of our episodes when we have a guest, which is shameless plug time. This is the time in the episode where you as the guest get to shamelessly plug literally anything you want. Past examples include restaurants, the TV show, surf instructor, lipstick. Your, your nonprofit, your lab, like it can be fun. It can be real, whatever. Ooh, ooh, this is tantalizing. Okay, I think my shameless plug would be I am trying to become more intentionally active on my Instagram. A lot of people present science or like in this like glorified, glamorous manner. And I just try to come a little bit more real with like, you know, my experience was horrible. I'm still here. Let's keep doing it, you know? Um, and so if people want to check out my Instagram, I think it's Erica Moore Taylor because yeah, that's my legal name. I got married and I changed it. So, but I professionally go by Erica Moore, but yeah, on Instagram and Twitter, I'm Erica Moore Taylor. And so if people want to follow me and or give me advice on content to generate, I'm actually interested and excited about interacting with more people like, you know, on social media. So that's my shameless plug. <laughs> I love it. So I just followed you while you were talking and I will say, yeah, Double Shelix, 
we have an Instagram as well, but we were mostly on Twitter, but now that Twitter is like X and it's like a trash, I don't even know. Like I'm still on Twitter, but I've noticed recently when I post the episodes, like no one's, well, maybe they just don't like it, but no one is engaging at all on anything that we post. So I've started posting our episodes on LinkedIn, like a corporate tryhard. I think I got to get out there. Maybe we can start posting on Instagram too. I don't know. I feel like Instagram and LinkedIn are the new modalities because people are very much over X. They're Xing it out. It's totally fine or normal to pe- for people not to feel empowered in their finances. Um, and that's fine. That's usually like step one, figuring out where you're at and having this moment of like dread panic. Um, but I want to encourage people to continue to progress to step two, right? Where you try to interact, influence your finances, understand your patterns. And even if that understanding is like, yeah, I'm not going to do anything right now because I'm over leveraged. But, you know, in six months from now, hopefully I can, you know, put $50 on this, you know, bill or whatever. That is all of those steps are valuable. Appreciate each of them. Just keep going, right? It takes five years, seven years, 10 years to make things. But as the old saying goes, Rome wasn't built in a day. And so your financial empowerment also won't be built, you know, over one year, but, but have faith and trust in yourself. Mm-hmm.